Who is the tall, dark stranger there? Maverick is the name. Riding the trail to who knows where. Luck is his companion. Gambling is his game. Smooth as a handle on a gun. Maverick is the name. Wild as the wind in Oregon. Blowing up a canyon. Easier to take. All right, we've got rather short third segment here today, and I would like to talk about, um, I think, some science topics. Although we do want to doff our hat, based on that theme music, to a brief obituary due to the fact that we lost actor James Garner this week. This may be our briefest obit ever. I just want to say that I enjoyed him as an actor on TV, uh, playing Maverick back in the, uh, well, I guess late 50s, early 60s. And we want to cite him for his unabashed political support of progressive candidates. Back in August of 1963, James Garner was one of several celebrities to join Martin Luther King Jr. in his march on Washington for jobs and freedom. In his autobiography, Garner recalled sitting in the third row listening to King's I Have a Dream speech. We'll have a few more things to say about him in the future. But let's talk about uh, some science things that sort of, well kind of blew my mind when I read them in the last few weeks. Maybe we should have a new segment, Mr. Milling, titled, You're Kidding Me. Starting with this one, Plants Can Hear. You're kidding me. No, the New York Times notes that scientists have long known that some plants react to sound, but they didn't know why. A new study indicates that the phenomenon may be linked to a plant's ability to fend off predators. According to this report, Certain plants respond to the sound of caterpillars eating leaves by emitting caterpillar-repelling chemicals. This comes from researchers at the University of Missouri, Columbia. They played recordings of insects eating to one set of plants and kept another in silence. Later, when caterpillars began feeding on the leaves, the plants that had been exposed to the eating noises produced more repellent chemicals than the control set. So, we're pretty sure plants can do it, but... How? How are they listening in? That, that remains to be determined. So, you know, people that talk to their plants, well, maybe on to something. And for that matter, so might be the people who are into aromatherapy. Because it turns out that skin apparently heals itself a little better when it sniffs the right scents. Yes, you heard that right. Scientists note there are more than 350 types of olfactory receptors in the nose, tuned to different scents, and about 150 are also found in internal tissues, such as those of the heart, liver, and gut. Those are hard to study, of course, so researchers at the Ruhr University in Germany focused on skin, which is easier to study. They tested the response to scents of receptors in keratinocytes, the main skin cell type. They found that sandalore, a synthetic sandalwood oil used in aromatherapy, perfumes, and skincare products, bound to an olfactory receptor in the skin. Rather than sending messages to the brain, as nose receptors do, these receptors triggered cells to divide and migrate, important processes in repairing damaged skin. Now, they did test natural sandalwood oil in 10 different synthetic versions, but only found three had a beneficial effect. But still, of course, scientists did note that the concentrations of sandalwood used were a thousand times higher than those needed to activate a receptor in the nose, so a skin cream, rather than aromatherapy, would probably be needed to promote this healing effect. And from the how-could-that-work <laughs> file, we were speculating some months back about how could xenon, an inert gas, a heavy inert gas, familiar from the right end of the periodic table of the elements, be something that could help athletes? Well, 
The World Anti-Doping Agency has now banned xenon and argon because those inert gases apparently help athletes cheat by, well, having a similar effect to altitude training. Now, if you live in a flat country and you want to go train at altitude somewhere, that can get pretty expensive. So uh, people are debating the, the benefits of using these gases um, to, in effect, level the playing field. This is a very strange story. We're going to have to continue to follow it. And from the technology department, we suppose it was only a matter of time before somebody developed a wearable submarine. But here's a weird story. The world's most advanced robotic diving suit is getting ready to help search for one of the world's oldest computers. The suit is called the Exosuit. It has a rigid metal humanoid form with Iron Man-like thrusters that enable divers to operate safely down to depths of 300 meters. Testing is going on to ready the suit for a daring attempt to excavate an ancient Roman shipwreck off the Greek island of Antikythera. We talked about this some weeks back. A century ago, divers pulled the world's oldest computer, the Antikythera mechanism, from the wreck, and they're hoping they'll find a second device when they go down this coming September. This is a pretty weird story. This, uh, this, this wearable submarine allows divers to go basically a thousand feet down. They note the pressure inside is no different from being in a submarine or in fresh air. They can go straight to the bottom, spend five hours there, and come straight back to the surface with no decompression. Now, Mr. McMillan, who does have a commercial diver's license, I believe, do you not? That is correct. Has noted that such rigid suits are not necessarily all that new, but uh, perhaps it's the Iron Man-like thrusters that uh, make this uh, a leap into the future. Anyway, we'll follow this in September to see um, if they can find another Antikythera and if they can, uh, well, maneuver a thousand feet down. Actually, it turns out this wreck is only 400 feet down, so who knows? be really cool if they could find another mechanism like that. Speaking of going down deep in the sea, here's another one out of left field. And we do have to apologize, dear listener, for the fact that we somehow completely missed the boat on the Goldschmidt conference, which was held here in Sacramento last month. We don't know. We didn't know much about it. We still don't, but we probably should. Some interesting science came out of this conference including the fact that genetic studies are showing that there are some microorganisms deep down in the muck of the ocean that previously we knew nothing about. But some of them in the so-called dark energy biosphere are the deepest living organisms. They somehow survive hundreds of meters underground, far from the sun's life-giving light. They're finding out about these organisms by crunching uh, numbers on the um, metagenomics. They're basically finding the DNA and... uh, analyzing the genes. So far, 50% of the genes in the genomes of these bugs have no known function, which is a very unusually high proportion. Some of the microbes seem to lack a metabolism, so they can't really feed themselves. They may be reliant upon other species for survival. As a result, of course, they can never be grown in isolation in the lab, which explains why they've never been seen before. Another story we gotta follow. And I guess final item for today, is the fact that uh, a lot of mathematicians and people that studied such things were pretty sure that, um, well, a double star system was pretty hard to envision having a planet orbiting one of the two stars. They've already found planets that orbit the system, but orbiting just one was thought to be problematic, except, as always seems to be the case, now they've found one. Apparently, researchers at Ohio State University 
used a method called gravitational microlensing to study a star system with, with two small, dim, red dwarf stars. And the team found a planet about twice the mass of our Earth orbiting one of the two stars at about the same distance we are from the sun. This reminds me of an essay Isaac Asimov did many years back looking at some double star system that noted that uh, out there in space that the, that the smaller star was orbiting the larger star about where Uranus orbits our sun. He then described what it would be like to live on such a planet, at least in terms of the amount of daylight you'd be receiving. He speculated back in the 70s or 80s that it wasn't clear that uh, such a system could exist, but that, well, what the hell? Uranus is out there orbiting our sun where it does. Why couldn't a small star? Well, it looks like, in fact, such a thing is possible. It's a nice thing to know, even if we're pretty sure you haven't lost a whole lot of sleep over that issue. All right, we are so out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We want to thank Jay Barbary for speaking with us about his book, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight. He was a great guest, and I hope we'll have him on again sometime. Anyway, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I will see you next week at the same time.